Hey, everybody. I'm here with Lee Kemp. Lee Kemp was my idol in the wrestling world. He was everybody's idol around the world. He was the man to beat for six, seven, eight years straight. He was the number one man in the world in Olympic-style wrestling. Lee, so great to be here with you. Thanks, John. Uh, it's, it's cool to circle back around with you. We're both kind of in the later years of our life. You know, I'm 63, and you know, we've had that experience way back when we were young wrestlers together. So it's, it's been pretty cool, cool journey. Yeah, you know, um, I have fond memories. My high school coach, I was, I was coming out of eighth grade. I was kind of a hotshot boys club wrestler. And my local high school coach let me work out with the varsity guys. And then he took a group of us up to the NCAA Nationals in Princeton. And oh. I'd never seen anything like that. And you were a young freshman at University of Wisconsin. And my coach, my coach Steve Wilcox said, keep an eye on this guy. And we watched you all the way through. We, we snuck down and got Matt's side seats for the finals. And <laughs> wow. It was an epic match. You took Chuck Yagla into an overtime that was tied after overtime. And you lost the closest margin that was possible. A two to, I think it was a two to three split decision back when the referees used to, to vote on the matches. But it was amazing to watch you. And uh, we idolized you for years on end after that. The other thing that was memorable about, memorable about that trip was my coach took me down the wrestling room between sessions and I got to see him, Dan Gable, the wow. guy that I had read the book, the guy at age 12 I was I tuned in and watched him win his Olympic gold medal on the black and white TV. And I know yes. he had a big impact on your life too, but there he was for me. And I went up to him boldly and asked him to go takedowns. I talk about, <laughs> I, <love it. laughs> I talk about it in the book how he goes, no kid. But then he came back after his hard grueling workout and grabbed me by the hand and goes, all right, kid, let's go do some takedowns. And uh, he spent time with me. I'll never forget that. Wrestling was a great sport, and it, it weaves in and out of my book, Wrestling with the Angels, because it's, it depicts a struggle in life. We all have the struggle in life. And I know you have something, some words of wisdom for the athletes who have now missed their seasons and their national championship hopes with the COVID-19 dilapidation of all the sports, because in 1980... That Olympic gold medal was yours. You were the number one guy in the world, as we talked about. But the rug was ripped out from under you. And so I wanted to ask you about that kind of painful memory because uh, I know it. you showed so much heart and soul and perseverance. And uh, it was easy to be maybe be bitter after that, but I, I never sensed that from you. Um, no. I guess it was because... Um... It was for two reasons. One, I, I sort of thought I'd have another chance. <clears throat> and uh, I was young enough. I was like 22 or three or something like that. So I thought, well, I'll just make another Olympic team. But you know how life works out. You know, I didn't. I didn't make the team. So I became more frustrated as it got closer to the realization that I was never going to be an Olympic champion. That was right around 1984. But... um. I guess well, the way I would characterize it now, it's like a death of a loved one. It could be a spouse or a child. And you have kids. I have kids. You know, a lot of the listeners or people who will hear this will understand what that feels like to lose someone that you love. When that Olympics was boycotted, it was like a death. 
you know, you can never get it back, but you have to move on just like you do when there is a death or something bad happens in your life. You have to figure out how to just how to resurrect yourself, how to get back up. It's uh, it's like wrestling. You, you, you know, you're on your back. You got to fight off your back and you got to get back up. Uh, and that's what we all have to do in our lives. You know, we all could have uh, a similar story of something in our life that was taken away. It could be your health from an in, from you know an illness. It could be like I mentioned a death. It could be you don't get through this life without having a major disappointment. So uh, the 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 just the last thing I say to people when I kind of relate my experiences to maybe going through the boycott or going through some of the difficulties I have is. What you want to have happen, what you pray for every day, is that you can, at the end of all that, you're still standing, you know. Right. You can say, I'm still being productive. I still have a life. I still have uh, my mind. I still have goals. I still want to be productive. And I'm still standing, still standing after all these years. I'm still standing. So I pray that all of us can say that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that's a good testament. I think uh, I, I've heard another interview from you, and we've talked about why you were drawn to wrestling. And, and you got kind of started. You tried varsity basketball and uh, and weren't the greatest basketball player. God had another plan for you. I think yes. the high school wrestling coach pulled you off the court and said, hey, we got a varsity spot for you. <laughs> but you quickly – I think you were like a 500 season that first year, but – but a, almost a year later, you were a two-time Ohio State champ, and then all of a sudden, one of the top junior national wrestlers in the country. And uh, and then all of a sudden, I found yourself on a scholarship at the University of Wisconsin and uh, a team that was just kind of packed with an Olympic-type culture because you had Russ Hellickson there at Wisconsin. Uh, and talk about that, how, kind of how you how you kind of went right from high school. Was there a moment in high school or when was the time where you kind of stood and looked yourself in the mirror and said, I'm going to be an Olympic and world champion? John, just like you, I had that, 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 that epiphany, not spiritual, but, but a uh, epiphany, so to speak, uh, of, uh, of meeting Dan Gable. I'm not trying to compare the two, yeah. but, but it was that powerful of a moment. And as you, uh, I hear stories of other people just like yours and mine that meeting him at that time, just, it was so impactful to our lives. So that's what happened to me after my 500 season, my first year on varsity, I had a 500 record, as you might imagine, just being uh, first, first starting to wrestle. But then I went to uh, a camp that summer and that was the summer of the Olympics. And Gable was at that camp, just like you. I asked him to wrestle too, and he kind of. But but he was like you. I've got another positive into that. He drilled with me. Dan, Dan's an amazing guy, you know. He uh, he used me as a drill partner for the whole camp for the whole week. Wow. So uh, that that was the way that he allowed me to be have that personal experience with him. Of course, he doesn't remember it, but it just meant the world to me. Sure. So when I went home, I watched a black and white TV. I don't think color TVs were invented then even, but uh, 1972, black and white TV, watched him win his gold medal. And I related the two events, me meeting him at the camp, uh, doing drilling with him. And he worked out because he was in his, he was in a hot, you know, his final stages of training. 
So he had his training partners there. You know, the Peterson brothers were there. Ben and John Peterson, who they, they themselves were Olympic gold and silver medalists. So I get to see them work out. And he had other workout partners, just high, high level guys training right after the right after the technique sessions at the camp. I was one of, you know, 200 campers. Mm-hmm. And after the morning session, <clears throat> all the other campers would go to lunch. But I'd sat and watched him train lunch. You know, I didn't want to go to lunch. It was more important to watch this guy train. And I just tried to get inside of him. You know, if there was if there was a way to, you know, leave my body and to go into his, I did it back then. Don't know how I was able to absorb all that. But when I came home after the only five day camp, I was the black Dan Gable. I was yeah. like, I, I became him somehow. I, at least that was what my mind, I just morphed into a different person. My parents talk about it much later. You know, they, they said they just saw that something very different happened to me when I came back from the camp because number one, I started working out like crazy. I mean, that's very different, you know, very distinct as coach. You've coached a lot of athletes. So I, when you see an athlete that makes this adjustment in their, in their mentality, it just affects their whole being, their training, their, you know, just the other things in their life become more disciplined and focused. Uh, like in my case, I became a better student in high school. Uh, my grades got better. I just didn't even come close to doing any of the bad things that the kids were doing in high school. You know, like there's always kids doing certain things. I never, I just stayed even further away from those things. So that's what happened. And, um, as I, as I went through that year, that just that one season that between sophomore junior season, I was just learning about myself throughout the, the entire season. I felt like I was improving like every week. I, I tell people if the state tournament would have been a week earlier, I wouldn't have won it. That was the growth curve I was on. So one week later, I won the state tournament. And if it was a week earlier, I, I don't think I would have won it. And then all of a sudden, your freshman year at Wisconsin, you find yourself in the NCAA national finals already. And uh, and then you're, the following season, you win that championship. But was it that year or the year after that, where you slammed Dave Becker from Penn State in the uh, oh, in the uh, quarter was it the quarterfinals? See, yeah, it was the quarterfinals. This, this story uh, is personal to me because I came into Penn State and I took over Dan, I took over Dave Becker's spot. He was the winningest Penn State wrestler at the time and uh, was an All American and and uh, he would always he'd tell me personally he'd always read the brackets and say to himself after I lose to Kemp I'll have this person that person, <laughs> but but actually. Uh, the referee called you for slamming him, and I want you to tell the story. And Dave was laying on the mat. I don't know if he was acting in pain or if he was in pain, but it was almost going to crush one of your titles. Tell me about that story. You know, and uh, I've got another story about Dave, too. It's just funny how life goes full circle. But, yeah, right out of high school, because meeting Gable, I, I, I thought Gable never lost, so I'm never going to lose again. That's the goal I had. I, I so I was cruising along as a freshman and I make, make it to the national finals. So I, I fully expected to win that match, you know, and uh, that didn't happen. So I was crushed. So then the next year, I was more determined than ever that I was going to be a national champion. So 
I was undefeated all year, and that was even the year I wrestled Gable. So that was even in that record of an undefeated season. Yeah. So I get to the quarterfinals, and, you know, I'm wrestling Dave Becker. He was tough. He was strong. But mentally, I was going to win, man. I was just focused. And one of the moves we had, we learned in Wisconsin, we did those lifts, you know, head outside lift, and we take guys to the mat. I never had been called for a slam before. And, um, and when that happened, I was like, I was like shocked, man. It was like, cause he looked like he was injured and I, I didn't know. I mean, I lifted him up hard and we took, we hit the mat and he stopped and he was hurt. And then, but the thing that really the head coach at the time and Bill it was, Cole. yeah, Bill Cole, I saw Bill Cole kind of, kind of walk over to Dave and said, this is it, man. And I, and I saw that and I just thought, oh, I lost. I'm not going to win this. But the assistant coach, it was Andy, Andy Matter. He walked in front of him and walked over to Dave. And I heard him say to Dave, you're, I don't know exactly what he said, but the gist of it was, come on, man, you're wrestling. You know, and I just and my I just felt better. So when I walked back out and no, me, no disrespect to Dave. I mean, I'm not it has nothing to do with Dave because he he had nothing to do with it. If they had never called the slam, we would. I'm sure he would have kept wrestling. We both would have just kept wrestling because I've seen slams a lot harder than that. And so have you in the national tournament. But I, but I respect any matter to this day because, uh, and I, and I'm not slamming Bill Cole. I just think, and, and sometimes the, the effort and the zealousness to win, sometimes you think maybe that's. Preach. You know, that's funny because uh, Bill Cole is a legend legend himself, three-time NCAA champion, and I think he never lost his college career. And they say they invented the slam rule because of him, because back in his day, he used to slam guys so hard they'd go unconscious, and he'd shake them around, so the referee thought they still had some life in them. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, I never heard that part of it. Now, that's just my version of it, Uh, but there was a tense moment there that I didn't know what was going to happen, and I was I was crushed, man. I just thought, man, I'm not going to be a national champion now. Kudos for Dave Becker getting up and uh, and going again because um, Andy Matters a, a class act, and he he was one of the main reasons I I found myself at Penn State. I was being recruited by three of the top guys at that weight, and you know them all well. Wade Shallis was the head coach at Clemson. Yeah. Stan Desick was the assistant coach at Michigan State. Yes. And I didn't know who Andy was because Penn State didn't do much freestyle. They didn't do anything towards the Olympics in the offseason. They say Bill Cole had kind of an animus of, about the Olympic governing, mm-hmm. governing body back then. And um, But Andy Matter, I had a year with him as an assistant, and he was the guy that, that really got me toughened up in the room there. Yeah, I, I appreciate him for that. And uh, I think, I'm not sure if I've ever had a chance to, no, I, I'm sure I've never talked to him about that exactly. And maybe my interpretation of that was not the way I just described it. But um, but I'm so I'm sure glad he wrestled. <laughs> I mean, and the scoring of being 8-5, eight, eight, you know. Yeah, a, and so uh, earlier in that year was the shot that, was heard around the world that way before Instagram or Facebook or anything, the wrestling world heard the news that you had defeated the great Dan Gable. And uh, I think a fall match uh, at the great plains tournament, was it? 
it, it was it was the Northern Open. It was Northern the tournament Open. that we hosted at Wisconsin. So it made it it made it convenient for all the schools very close to Wisconsin, like <clears throat> Iowa, Iowa State. We're all <clears throat> we're always there. It was a great time to get some awesome competition that we didn't have to travel very far. So it was really good. Right. So uh, fast forward to 1983. I got to finally wrestle against the Soviets. I wrestled in the uh, duel, the USA duel at Stabler Arena. I wrestled one of your guys, Vorvayev. Yes. Uh, I think you had beat him in the world championships. and By one point, yeah. Yeah, I had a close match, and I think on virtue of my close match against him, I got invited down to the World Cup team trials. I think it was up in Michigan, and it was you and Dave what? Schultz and me and King Mueller and uh, yes, the weekend of wrestle-offs, and that that was the first time I got to compete against the great Lee Kemp, and uh, I, it was a good lesson for me. I was uh, I couldn't score a point on you, and you defeated me. And then we still we all still had to make weight for the second day. And then in the back room where the scales are, there were mats, and we had our sweats on. And and you pulled me aside and kind of uh, asked if I wanted to spar and go a little bit. And I always appreciated that because I learned so much. And uh, but I, I I also learned earlier in that evening how when you don't want someone to score on you, you can shut people <laughs> down with your head and hands defense. And I, I never forgot that. But I always appreciate that, Lee. And then um, that weekend, I guess, was the passing of the torch, so to speak, in, in some terms, because you and Dave were the two best in the world. Well, Dave hadn't proved himself as the world champ, but I, but uh, he overtook you in a match the next day. And then uh, so that must have been kind of a turning point a little bit for you. How would you it describe Um. You know, it was the first time he, he'd ever beat me. I'd beaten him nine times in a row up until right. that point. From 1978 until 1983, I'd beaten him every time. The matches were close. Some, there were a few matches that were maybe not as close, maybe like four or five points, but maybe twice. But then every match was one point, and that match was a one-point loss. And it was frustrating because, um, and not making any excuses, I've never really commented about this publicly until now, but the boycott of 80 was really difficult for a lot of competitors, you know, me included, a lot of competitors. And so uh, my goal, my thought was I was going to retire after 80. That's was, I was not going to wrestle after 80. There was no way, man, I just was not going to wrestle after 80. So then when the boycott happened, I compared to like if you were in medical school, you know, and you go through eight years of training. Now you're in your residency and then you learn that the school, schools that you went to have been suddenly unaccredited or something. And now you've got to do it all over again. And you kind of make an appeal like, well, the time I put in, can I just transfer that over and get my degree from another college? And you're told, no, you have to do it all over again. You know, how many people would go to medical school again, you know? And that's what it's like when you say you're gonna train for another four years. I mean, there was no money like it is now. It's not great money now, but at least you can you can make a little money now as a wrestler. Uh, if you win a gold medal in the world, you get 50 grand from USA Wrestling. If you win an Olympic gold medal, you get a quarter million, plus endorsements and all those kind of things. There was nothing from that. I remember taking my penny jar to the the store several times just to go buy food occasionally, you know. Uh, but anyway, 
I, uh, and then my father died in 1981, not making any excuses, but you know, so I, uh, I make the world team in 81 and Dave went up to, you know, Dave, uh, went up to 180 cause he did, you know, he was trying to find a way to get on the team and he decided yeah. he'd try to wrestle Chris Campbell off to make the team. And Chris beat him only by a point though. That's how tough Dave was. And I took third in the world. Then that was the first time I had, had lost a match in the world championships. And so I'm not saying I was a little off, but things were just tough, you know? And so then I realized wrestling was not going to give me anything because I was the most successful wrestler in America. And I, there was no job offers. Not that there was an abundance of many out there anyway, but, but, um, I will say Grady Pinager offered me a, a, a job as an assistant coach, mm-hmm. but I felt so loyal to Wisconsin and I just never really felt like I'd want to leave there. And so as a result, I, and then, uh, Dennis Finfrock at the university of Nevada, Las Vegas, that offered me an assistant coaching job there. But I was training and I was still thinking I need to be in an environment where I could train. So then uh, in 1982, I entered grad school. And that was different because it was really a different dynamic because uh, I, had, I had enrolled in 1981 and had to drop all my classes because it was really difficult. And uh, it, I had to pull lots of strings just to get into graduate school at Wisconsin, which is very difficult and highly accredited uh, MBA program. I mean, I, I, through my wrestling connections, I met with the mayor and, you know, I met with the chancellor and met with the dean. You know, I just, I just used every connection I could to get a favorable, just a chance to get into the business school, which I got that chance and I had to drop all my classes because, uh, like before, you know, I, I, you know, before, before the midterm, I didn't do well on my, I just felt like, man, I have to start over. So I'm just telling the story. It's a little bit long, but. I was struggling trying to find just to figure out what I was going to do with my life, you know? So I was still wrestling was still out there. So then I finally go back the next semester to grad school and then I do well in my class. So now I'm kind of in that mode, that groove. So I was in grad school at the time I went there to wrestle off for the world, for the world cup team. So, you know, I'm not saying that my tension was divided, but it kind of was. And when I, and when I lost to Dave, it didn't feel the same. Yeah, it didn't feel the same. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm preparing myself for life after wrestling. And I, and I knew it was always a possibility that I could lose to him because Dave was always very tough. But then then I came back and beat Dave for the world team uh, uh, trials. So I actually was the number one guy on the world team later that year and was going to compete in the world championships in 1983. But I had to defend my spot to Dave. And so um the day before I was going to wrestle Dave off, uh, literally, the, the Dan Gable was a coach, and the final wrestle-offs were going to be in Iowa. So, you know, I lost to Dave in the World Cup trials. Dave made the World Cup team. Then I, I beat Dave in the, our, 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 our world team trials. And then um, because of graduate school, uh, if I made the world team that year in 83, I was going to have to miss a semester of graduate school because that was the first year – the World Games are going to be in October rather yeah. than in the summer. And so that weighed in my mind. And so I, I, I made the decision that I would rather finish another semester of graduate school rather than make another world team. And so I called, I called Dan that night, <clears throat> the night before I was supposed to drive to Iowa to wrestle Dave. I told him that I had made the decision to not, <clears throat> to not go. And he tried to talk me out of it. And he suggested I talk to Stan, and I did. 
Stan tried to talk me out of it. And you know, they, they were right. Their assessment of where I was at in my life, they said, Lee, you can always finish grad school. You can always go back on semester. You're, you have a unique opportunity in your life right now to do something really special in wrestling. You know, he says, I, I still think you're a little bit better than Dave. Dave's really close. But if you let him get that opportunity to compete, you don't know what can happen after that. Yeah. Those are, those are uh, Stan's almost exact words. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, Dave makes a team uncontested. He wins the world championships in Moscow, which is an awesome feat. He beats Borbaya, I think, for yep. Yeah. And then, um, and then uh, I never, I never beat him after that. So then, when the fu- when the Olympic trials started, I lost to Dave in the in the Olympic trials and then the two wrestle off matches. Yeah. So I have four losses to Dave in, in a total of ten matches. You went on to a very successful. You got your MBA and uh, very successful business career. And the thing I liked about your book, Winning Gold, it, it's a uh, has a lot of key points that could carry over into any aspects of life, into the business world, into achieving anything in any sport and any endeavor or any goal that you put your mind to. And uh, fast forward to, uh, I think it was around 2006, I run into you in Alpharetta. Actually, uh, find <laughs> out you're, we're in the same town. I'd come to this town and I was, I was managing the Lifetime Fitness Clubs, big, huge, big box, beautiful health clubs. And I heard you were in town, tracked you down. We started working out together, and uh, I brought you over to um, Lifetime Fitness, where I, I I managed about 30 of the uh, top fitness professionals in the Atlanta region, and I put you through a body age test. Uh, you, we were both in our 50s, and I put you through this polar body age test that that assesses body fat, your cardiovascular conditioning, strength and flexibility, and uh, and your numbers were off the chart. You had the uh, graded out report of like a 19-year-old. And, <laughs> oh, my goodness. And uh, the trainers were all buzzing. Who is this specimen of a man? But you've used wrestling as a kind of a lifestyle component. And you and I would work out in the room, and uh, we'd go hard. And uh, afterwards, we uh, one one time we were sitting, sitting against the wall, and he goes, man, we should be on Oprah. Oprah should, t- <laughs> should film one of our sessions and show – two older guys in really good shape and just still battling. And uh, that was a really nice time for me to get to know you as a, a great friend of our family and uh, spend that time with you. Yeah. I appreciate those salmon dinners too. I still remember that. <laughs> Absolutely. And it wasn't long after that. Um, my older son had uh, broke his leg during a high school wrestling match. And then uh, p- part of my story wrestling with the angels is how uh, his opioid prescription the doctor gave him became an addiction. And uh, that was a real tough time because uh, it was hard to share what we were going through with anybody. Yes. But you were there for me and and uh, kind of one of the angels in my life that kind of helped uh, that I could confide in and uh, could could listen and understand what we were going through. And I always appreciate that. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Wow. I know how much your kids mean to you. I've learned that from spending time with you. And uh, and now your son's wrestling at Fresno State. So it must be really rewarding for you. It's a full circle thing. And when I was, when we had connected, I was estranged from my kids then and ex-wife. As you know, we had a lot of those conversations too. So you were there for me too. And uh, we talked quite, you know, quite a bit about what I was going through. And John Bartis, a mutual friend of ours, 
Uh, that's why I was in Alpharetta. Uh, I was actually living with John. That's just how bad my situation was. John invited me to come stay with him. So I got <clears throat> just got a new focus and kind of got my feet back on the ground. So, uh, so uh, I didn't even know if I'd ever really get to be around my kids like a dad anymore. And then to have my son come live with me when I, you know, when I was living in Chicago and, and when he was 10. And then to have him just develop into be a wrestler and then a D1 college wrestler, scholarship wrestler, that's just something I never, it wasn't on my mind that that's what I wanted to have happen. I just was happy to be around my son again. So it's been pretty cool. Absolutely. I know you're in California now and you're, and you've worked with a lot of MMA and, uh, fighters over the years and uh, we've talked about that before if that opportunity was there for us after wrestling career would we have taken it but I think it's a great opportunity and great option for for a lot of our NCAA wrestlers NCAA wrestling is really a, a feeder program for the UFC Dana sure. White must be so excited about it absolutely most wrestling backgrounds most of the successful ones in fact yeah. they they all do really I don't can't really think of one that doesn't actually and then it kind of came full circle again because uh, you became one of the Olympic coaches for the Beijing Beijing Olympics and uh, got to walk in for the ceremonies. You you never got that chance in 1980, so I, I know that was kind of must have been a kind of a really neat moment to come in and as a coach wearing the USA. I'm wearing my USA today because it's July 4th. I just, uh, tell me about that moment. It was an amazing moment because I never thought I would coach and on that level. Um, I, you know, when I lost to Dave and I didn't make the Olympic team in 1984, I was really frustrated with wrestling. I left wrestling and I went into business and, you know, that I'm glad I, I had my degree and all that. And I didn't come back to that. That was in um, like 1984, 85. I didn't come back to wrestling till like 2006. So that was how much time that elapsed. And so uh, I kind of got back into wrestling as a way to heal, sort of. John Bartis kind of helped me get back into wrestling. John was the team leader for Greco-Roman uh, yeah. team that competed in the games in Beijing. And uh, I think he was instrumental in me getting on as one of the coaches. So we actually marched in together in the Open Series in 2008. Some golly, was at 40, maybe almost plus year, 38 years. Or something like that. Um, so it was something I didn't think was ever going to happen for me. So it was a it was an emotional moment to be actually in the Olympic Stadium, to be in the Olympic Village, to be with Olympic athletes, not just wrestlers, uh, and to have Henry Cejudo be Olympic champion. I had yeah. a chance to work with him a little bit. Uh, Terry yeah. Brands was his coach, though. Terry was the main coach there for for him, but. I was there around him. I got to see his work ethic. I got to see him train, as well as the other ethic, uh, other athletes. Daniel Cormier was on that team. Yeah. Uh, UFC got a big fight coming up now, as we speak. Um, ben Askren was on that team as well. Yeah. And I know um, Ben Askren uh, wasn't really thrilled to go live with you in the room. <laughs> he had his brother there as his workout partner. Because uh, nobody wants to get beat on by uh, somebody in his fifties, but uh, I know you're uh, you stayed in that impeccable shape, and and it's interesting that you said kind of wrestling kind of had a healing effect on you because that's the kind of same thing I felt uh, for myself. I wrestling's kind of been 
kind of a healing martial arts type of uh, program, a fellowship, common fellowship. And uh, it's kind of the way I've, I've kind of figured out that wrestling is a way that we can measure ourselves against kind of the, the ancient, uh, the ancient effects of what life throws at you because uh, there's nowhere to hide. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it's a way to challenge yourself and to kind of a barometer that you can always feel that you're getting better. It's kind of a, therapeutic i'm going to be wrestling later this afternoon there's a college uh, wrestling workout today so one Very thing cool. I think, yeah you learn as an older wrestler you keep really good defense right i learned that from you as long as you can protect yourself and then you can <laughs> chase down a leg or something if you find an opening against those young guys but uh it's, it's a lifestyle and i think um you speak to that more than anyone in the way you've carried yourself and you've done that through nutrition and just a healthy way of life attitude for yourself. That's, um, I couldn't have said it better. I, I believe that we have to be active our whole lives. And I think sometimes we get sold a false narrative, I think, of that success in life is making a lot of money so I can retire and go lay on a beach and drink margaritas. That's not, that's not what fulfillment in life is because we've all maybe been on a beach trying to relax and we realize after a while how unfulfilling that is. We've all done that, we've been on nice vacations. And you know, while we're going through our struggle of life, we wish that could be that way all the time. But when you do get to a place where you think that, okay, I can do this all the time, you get bored and you realize I need something more. And that's one of the reasons I think you and I both appreciate wrestling because it allows us to stay physically and mentally active because I think the two are combined when you compete and and, and in the room and it, I can see visibly and how much it's uh, impacted me in a positive way. Uh, I'm not out there trying to, you know, beat the young guys, but I just want to be around them and spar with them. Yeah. I want to be able to teach technique. And, and still have the respect of the younger athletes because, I, because I'm able to keep myself in shape. I think that's how I view myself. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope to always be able to teach wrestling and give back. Yeah. There's something special about passing down your knowledge that so many coaches have shared with us and passing it on to new generations of wrestlers. Um, you know, uh, something I talk about in the book was just uh, so an era of unrest where I grew up outside of D.C. and kind of as a young eight-year-old kid witnessed uh, the, the, the riots and kind of the unrest, the racial unrest after the assassination of Martin Luther King and, and things like that. And it was kind of a strange time for me. I talk in the book also about and watching those Olympics with Dan Gable the broadcast being interrupted with the terrorism going on over in Munich and just uh, such nonsensical things. And as a kid, you try to try to comprehend that. And uh, and then uh, going over into uh, my junior high era, kind of uh, that time was still a lot of unrest and racial divide in our in our community. Kind of like like the movie uh, Remember the Titans was filmed in that area town. Uh, next to mine and and there was a lot of that kind of attention between blacks and whites and uh, I couldn't comprehend it or couldn't understand it but I became real good friends with one of the kids uh, who was on the basketball team 
Floyd. He was African-American family. And, and I became almost adopted by his family and he became adopted by mine. But the, the struggle was real. His older brother was killed in a, oh, wow. a racial riot after one of our high school football games. And it was just a nonsensical thing and a hit and run driver. And uh, I'll never forget his mom sitting on the front porch. And uh, so I experienced that. And it's just really pains me to see some of that unrest flaring up. And I think it's, uh, I just wanted to mention that because I know it's important to you. Uh, mm -hmm. And I want to just to kind of let you know my heart's in this moment in time that I hope everybody can come together and really kind of see each other. And in my book, I talk about my near-death experience where I felt a connection to every soul on earth. And, uh, and, and if people can only feel that and, and, uh, and share that love for each other, it's just, uh, it's something that I want to kind of uh, finish up our segment on and I'll let you pick up on that from here. You know, it's, it's the thing I get from what you said, it's, it's a heart change. It's not knowledge. It's not anything other than your heart has to change. And that's a spiritual connection or a spiritual awakening of some sort. Um, and people get that at various points in times in their life. I think the George Floyd moment, that was a moment for a lot of people. Not, of course, not everybody. There are people who had, you know, who could come up with a negative angle of that. But I think the positive response from that far outweighed anything negative. And I think it was more heartfelt, more heart changing. People realized uh, that, hey, maybe we need to take a look at this. I read a lot of the comments, saw a lot of the videos, and I won in particular. I'll, uh, I'll kind of recount a video that I saw that I think is really uh, appropriate for right now from the question you asked me. Uh, a woman uh, said, she was videoed, she said during one of the protests, uh, it was a black woman, she said a, a white protester <clears throat> threatened her life, it was in her face and, and was, you know, basically it was a situation where she, you should be kind of afraid. And she apparently wasn't from the onlookers and she was asked by a reporter, why didn't you show any fear? And the girl, the woman said, my father told me, when you're confronted like that, look right into the eyes of your, you know, the person that's trying to, you know, the aggressor. Show them that you're human. Yeah. And when you look in their eyes, they look back. And once they see that you're human, they hopefully will change. And this woman said it worked because this person just changed. I could see his heart change. I could see his eyes change. So... And maybe that one moment changed that, that man forever. And it sounds like that's what needs to happen right now. There needs to be some heart changing that can only come through maybe some, I hope not traumatic experiences, like maybe what you went through. Like, and if it was a near-death experience with you, it must have been something that was kind of traumatic. Uh, George Floyd's death was traumatic. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King's death was traumatic. I mean, you, you can pick points in our history that cause trauma that hearts were changed. And uh, I think we're in one of those moments now in our history. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And um, I appreciate you being on here with us today. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to 
your documentary. I haven't been able to watch it now, but could you tell the folks about uh, Wrestled Away and uh, how they can connect with that and watch that? Thank you, John, for bringing that up. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, well, the movie's called Wrestled Away, The Lee Kemp Story. And the title, uh, just like your title, Wrestle With Angels, after getting to know you and talking about your book, I see the angels in your life, that, that the connection there. And so in my movie, I had things wrestled away from me, as we all have. So hence the title, Wrestled Away. But um, you can go to my website at leekemp.com. And I've got information about um, my book, uh, the, the documentary Wrestle Away, and, and other things. Or you can just Google the, the name of the movie, Wrestle Away, The Leak and Story. Um, you can see it on all the video on demand platforms, probably except Netflix. So Google Play, Amazon Prime, all that. Thank you. Excellent. I think you have, um, you kind of have a, a kind of a 16 step method for, for young wrestlers too. Tell me about that. I think that's kind of a, a new series that you've produced. Thank you, John. I, I appreciate that. Um, Brian Stout was a, uh, a CEO and founder of Go Earn It on apparel company. He hired me to, to work some tournaments and things like that. And getting and Brian's been a wrestling coach. And so he knew my story and he was always, uh, very interested in how I went in one season from an average wrestler to an undefeated state champion. So he, he paid for a videographer to video me in 16 separate sessions a week. He kind of left it to me to figure out the content, but he said, Lee, I want to be able to have your story help other wrestlers because this is so unique. Surely someone else could benefit from this. So he helped kind of lay out kind of a little, you know, a roadmap, I guess. And our idea was that we would follow a wrestler through uh, kind of a typical wrestling season, which would be about 16 weeks. So we produced a video that would correspond with every week of your season. And so every week I hit on a different topic that I felt was very important to me having success in that transitional season. And that's the title of your greatest season. So it's, it's pretty cool. We put a lot of effort into it and it's, it's not a technique video or anything like that. Although I do show maybe a like a tiny little bit of technique, but technique more from a tactical ang angle. It's yeah. more philosophy and uh, what Lee Kemp was thinking about to get him to move, take those one steps, step after another, after another, to actually believing he could be a state champion after one year. And that's what the series is about. That's excellent. Well, we highly recommend that uh, for any young wrestler out there and, and your book for any young business person looking to um, exceed and excel in whatever endeavor that they set their goals for. Thanks, Lee. It's so great to be here with you today. And I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Thank you, John. I'm, I'm, I'm really honored that you would, uh, you would have me on your, on your podcast to promote your book. Excellent. I'll try to do some of your moves when I get in the restroom today. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon, Lee. Thank you. Sure. Yep. Take a picture and, and tag me in it today. That'd be pretty cool. I, like I definitely will. We'll be around okay. at Morris Fitness. All okay. right, Lee. See bye you bye. Soon.